There are secrets out there, guys, performance marketing secrets, and knowing just one or two of them can absolutely light up your funnels. Let's go. This is the Revenue Driven CMO. I'm your host, Chris Mechanic. Join me as I uncover the secrets of the world's most elite CMOs marketing leaders. The Revenue Driven CMO is sponsored by Web Mechanics, the AI-driven performance agency that makes you smarter. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of Revenue Driven CMO. I'm your main man, Chris Mechanic, here with a really interesting and exciting guest. Uh, today's guest is is a blend. He's got that, you know, that analytical data and and scientific mind, but he couples that with a sense of servant leadership and a and a um incredibly high EQ, a really inspirational leader. He's built B2B marketing teams uh, from the US and Europe to Australia and Japan, so truly a global uh, player, and also has worked at you know some of the largest enterprises in the world um, to some of the you know small, smaller and hyper growth uh, types com- type companies and everything in between. But in every single role, he's always had a proven track record of helping companies scale. Uh, Currently, he is at Acquia, uh, which is a client of ours, and and I love them deeply. Uh, And he was just recently promoted to SVP of Product and Solutions Marketing. Uh, Previously, he was VP of Growth. So we were joking just about how, you know, he's the utility player. Like he can he can just play many different positions. But super duper excited to get into it with them, ladies and gentlemen. It's Tom Bianchi from Acquia. How are you today, Tom? Very well. How are you doing, Chris? Doing great. Doing great. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Uh, I apologize. You can hear I'm a, a bit I'm just getting over a cold, so my voice is a bit uh, rough today. But we'll do our best. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Well. Uh, we always like to lead with the value here at Revenue Driven CMO. Um, I'm really excited to hear your secret. Why don't you share with everybody what is one of your biggest secrets to to the success that you've been able to produce in your marketing career? Yeah, we were talking the other day about this, and for a while I was kind of, you know, struggling to pinpoint it. And maybe that's partially because I've I've played so many different roles throughout my career in different capacities of marketing, but. The one thing that's been true is it's it's always been B2B and it's always been software and technology. So when I narrowed it down to that, which is still pretty broad, I started to think back through all of the different companies that I've worked for and you know, really what was the the secret that helped out. And um for me, it's all been about uh understanding the product market fit. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as you get that as a marketer, and as soon as you can dissect really down to the pain point that you know the audience that you're trying to market to um, is truly feeling, then it's almost like everything else downstream of that becomes so much easier to do. It becomes so much easier to you know create messaging uh, and write campaign copy. It's so much easier to help direct the you know and drive the the development of the product. Um, you can understand some of the mechanics of your funnel better because you can align it to how people are acting and behaving in the real world. And so being able to dissect really what the product market fit is, I think has been the the you know the big superpower that I've possessed. And 
Brilliant. I think that comes from I started in I did an engineering degree at college. Um so I've always had that analytical mind. And I, I think that's really what's helped me pick up technology quickly, even if I'm not a domain expert or a subject matter expert, and and translate it into business value. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there. Um, it reminds me of this book. Have you heard of this book called The One Big Thing by Ke- uh, Gary Keller? It's the founder of Keller Williams Realty, which is big here in the States. I, I have heard of it. I've not read it, so I, I don't want to claim something that I've not done. But yeah, I've heard of it. Tell me about it a bit, though. So the it poses a really demanding but really interesting question, which is, what is the one big thing, right? Not two big things, not three, but the one big thing uh, such that by doing everything else becomes either easier and or unnecessary. So it's the one big thing where everything else, you know, becomes either easier or unnecessary. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the point that you're making here is it sounds like in a world of marketing, that product market fit is that one big thing makes everything downstream of that easier including selling right like once you get the lead on the phone you know selling the selling the deal closing the deal will become much easier uh if that sales team has a really deep understanding of that too right yeah exactly and you know just remember that if you're really doing a good job in the marketing department then when you uh you know when you first launch a campaign to market you're going to enable your sellers right that's part of the process you're hopefully yeah. not firing campaigns out the door and not informing your sales organization what you're doing because that's not a good thing but again yeah. you know if if your campaign messaging makes sense because you understand your product market fit then the you know the the workload to enable your sales force to best respond to anything that comes from that campaign becomes easier because you know exactly how to articulate the pain points you know exactly you know what the what the prospect's going to say when you get them on the phone for example so yeah i totally agree with your logic there that anything downstream of that if this is the one big thing for me it, it you know makes a lot of sense yeah so um i want to talk about how right I, I mean you could write a whole book on like how to how to identify and how to better understand that product market fit. I want to just like, you know, get the Cliff's Notes version. But but before we do that, I'm curious, you know, you've been at multiple different companies over the years. In your experience, uh, when, you, when you enter these companies, do they generally have a strong understanding of product market fit or do you find them? So like basically on average, would you say 100% they nail it? Would you say like, you know, they're in the middle, kind of know it, or would you say that they're way off and like need major surgery, you know, to, to be even near the mark? Yeah, it's, that's a really interesting question because I think the answer is different for every single company. And I'll, I'll also give you a, like two different versions of the answer here. So typically if a company is um, more in, and you know, you were reading through my my bio before the types of companies that I've worked for, if it's a more in that startup hypergrowth, you know, they actually tend to understand their product market fit better sometimes than the bigger companies. And that seems paradoxical to say. Um, but if you think about the world of, you know, venture capital and private equity funding that goes on in the software industry that I play in a lot, these people have effectively had to secure millions of dollars of backing and funding from an organization that 
ostensibly doesn't really know too much about the market that they're in and and at least sound like they know enough about how their product fits in the market and what the market opportunity is. So yeah. typically speaking in a you know early stage software company the product market fit understanding is really solid. And yeah. you would have either the CEO or the CMO very easily be able to articulate what the value is and why their product fits in the market and what the market opportunity is. When you get to the bigger companies, they typically have got to a point where they don't just have one product category they play in. They've probably made some acquisitions, and so they've got multiple product categories. Some of them are complementary. Some of them might be completely you know, disconnected from each other. And so that sense of not just product market fit, but company market fit starts to morph a little bit. And so some of the messaging problems that you're trying to solve become more and more complex. So, um, you know, as a, as a kind of average rating, I would say, you know, if you're a smaller company, a good eight out of 10, know where their product fits, know where their companies fit within the market and can play, you know, relatively straightforwardly. And, and the whole business is on board with that. When you get to those bigger companies, you know, the five, 10,000 people, the billion, 2 billion, 15 billion in revenue. Yeah. They actually struggle to articulate that succinctly. Um, yeah. And I would say that's, you know, two out of 10 of them have got a good story there. Yeah. Now, um, and that's, that's really interesting, actually. The job gets harder, right? With scale, like as you get bigger, as you're in different categories, as you may have, you know, completely disparate products. So I guess the product market fit equation happens on a product by product basis, on a category by category basis. Or how do you think about that? So there's a couple of things at play here. You talked about you know, some of the things that are different in those two companies. The other thing that happens typically when you get to be a bigger company with, um, with you know, a multi-product offering is you shift from being a hyper-growth company that might actually be spending more than it is making in the software world, right? Yeah. To a company that very quickly shifts to needing to be profitable to exist. Yeah. And so this this other pressure happens, which also is really important in how you choose a message for a product and and change it. And that's that budget decreases per per unit sold. Your efficiency metrics become way more important um, than just you know getting a dollar of of revenue through the door. Mm. And that has an interesting effect on how you prioritize messaging for products because actually what you're trying to do really is. Uh, take multiple products together simultaneously because it's more efficient to do that than just keep running a single funnel for a single product. And so there's a third dynamic that is not just um, not just product market fit, it becomes solution market fit. And so there is also this art to being able to uh, you know understand a customer's pain point and how a multi-product solution that your company might be able to offer, um, can really help with that, and then taking that message to market through the right channels. And you know, there's a whole load of internal politics that you have to be able to understand to do that too. So, yeah. um, you, you know, I think uh, I think the art of solution market fit is really important. And if you stay, I think if you've been well grounded in you know those smaller companies, right, with the single product to, to market, and you really understand how to back it out of what's the customer's pain point. Mm. The rest is still, you know, easier. If you just start your career in a multi 
um, in a multi-product company and they haven't quite got this solution selling down yet, it's it's going to be strange and there's going to be a lot of internal conflict that you have to solve before you can you can actually finalize what that solution market fit is. Interesting. So so in a world where there's many products, many categories, uh, that solution market fit is really the holy grail. Absolutely. It no, it no longer you know gets as granular necessarily as the product. It's basically you know how can we how can we bundle these together. Uh, you know, to make, to turn it into a solution for you, Mr. or Mrs. Buyer. Yeah, exactly. And the solution, of course, should have, you know, should be more valuable than just a single product, right? We should not be collecting products together and selling them as a solution for the sake of it. It should be that you've acquired or developed complementary products that together make a better solution. Because sometimes that happens in companies too, where it's like, hey, we bought this and we bought this. Can you sell them together? It's like, why would we do that? Was, uh, because we need to? Well, does the customer need that? Yeah, I was um, I was pitching a deal to to a company of, that did just that. They were like, yeah, you know, we're in this space. Uh, I won't say what it is, but we're in space <laughs> A and like we made this acquisition and it's like a totally different customer, totally different product, totally different use case. Like what's our SEO strategy? And I'm like, what's your acquisition strategy? Why did you do that? <laughs> yeah, it's funny, right? And and companies do this all of the time. I think I think the next level as well is if, you know, if you're a professional in in your career and you're looking to progress. One of the things that I've always tried to do and I was lucky enough that I had a mentor early on in my career that kind of gave me this tip. If you're looking for a job though, I almost feel like it's your responsibility as a candidate that's interviewing to be asking questions around product market fit. Don't be distracted by, you know, 20% more pay and a, the next level of job title um, from, you know, company A or B or C. You should choose out of those three the one that has the best product market fit because it's actually going to help your career the best in the long run. The company's probably going to grow faster. The company's probably going to perform faster. If it's got an exit strategy or if it's publicly traded, it's going to please its shareholders better, which means yeah. that there's going to be more money either in profit or in funding, whichever way you look at it, which means your career is probably going to progress. So it sounds really counterintuitive that you don't start with, well, I want you know myself to be successful and I want this much pay and I want that much, you know, that as my title. Actually, if you go back to product market fit when you're choosing a company to work for, because you should always choose a company to work for and not just interview for anything blindly, that is your secret weapon to career progression too. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. So anybody, uh, so this recording basically would be gold for anybody that is on the job market right now. Because they could basically just like, you know, take a product market fit lens to the interview with them and probably command a higher, a higher wage. Um, I have a couple of other things for you. And, and as we're talking more, like, I'm, you know, more and more questions and ideas are coming to mind. So I'd, uh, I'd mentioned that I want to talk about like, okay, how do we identify this? But even before we get there. Let's suppose, you know, many, many marketers are listening to this. They're probably wondering, well, do, do I have a good product market fit? Like, how do we know? Do you have some kind of a rubric or some kind of a 
framework that you use to even first answer the question of like, do we have a product market fit right now or do we not? Or where are we on that on that spectrum that we were talking about? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, first-hand data is always a really, you know, good starting point. So if you're already at a company, how are your sales doing, right? How, how's your opportunity close rate? Are you getting lots of people who talk to you, but then nobody buys? Because that's a pretty good sign that your your product doesn't fit the market need. Um, it could it could be because of sales execution problems, which is a whole different conversation. But as you know, as as a quick indicator, that's a good place to look. If you are outside of a company trying to look in, then keep your perspective outside. Uh, look at analyst um, you know reports around the company that you're working for in, in whichever industry you're playing in. There's always an industry analyst of some sort. Um, you can look also at really basic things like product reviews. Um, so look at product review sites and see what you know the end users are saying about the product, um, and get you know a real insight into the problems that they're reporting and so on and so forth. And yeah. that can be a secondary consideration, especially if you're trying to choose a company to go and work for. By the way, you can have a company that has a really good product market fit, but it can have an unreliable or a you know a product that falls over all the time or it doesn't do as it maybe could do because of performance issues. It's another little yeah. flag to look for. But yeah, start with those reviews. Start with this external data if you're outside looking in. Yeah, yeah. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Okay, cool. So, um, so from an internal perspective, it's basically like, hey, are we closing sales? Yeah. And maybe also retention or you know upsells uh, could be a good metric then from an external perspective it's about the reviews the analyst reports that makes a lot of sense yeah. um so now that we have benchmarked ourselves so we know okay we're probably somewhere in the middle right uh what are the steps involved with you know going from going from meh to like wow yeah so firstly um You've got to get the understanding of what does wow look like, uh, right? And and there's a load of different ways to to go at this depending on where you're at. The um, the single place that I would start, if you can, is with your customers. Go and talk to them, mm-hmm. understand what their pain points are, and then ask them the question. Firstly, what does it mean if we solve that problem? To you as an individual, to you, you know, to your company, right? Because then you'll understand the magnitude of the, the pain point. But then you should be asking a really open question, and that's does product A or any of its competitors fully solve that problem today? Because what you're looking for there is even if it might hurt, you want them to tell you, well, your competitor is actually better, but you were 30% cheaper, so we went with you. Mm. or no you're actually the best in the market and we couldn't believe how much we you know were able to secure your solution for it's so valuable for our business there's two pieces of key information there so one if your competitor is significantly better than you um then they should tell you if your competitors loosely the same as you but you charge more or they charge more then you've got a pricing thing to think about if there is just no demand for your product and your customers are like really shy and they're not talking to you. You need to figure out what capabilities within the product are missing. So then your next level of inquiry is, 
what are the actual features and functions of my product or service that would solve that problem, right? Because if you can solve that problem, then you've got great product market fit straight away. And then the value of your product goes up. So if you're trying to grow as a company, you can increase the price of your product and and not affect sales, right? We can have a whole conversation on uh, price elasticity of demand, but I'm not going to go there today. Um, and, and that is the secret sauce. If you can figure out what's missing to solve that pain point and then what value it creates to the business, you've got that killer combo of a product that then can ascend to be the wow and not the meh. Um, and you can make the most money from doing so coldly because you can set a price that's probably higher than people are paying for it today. I love that. I like the wow and not the meh too. That's that's yeah. funny. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, I want to talk about Acquia here in just a second. Uh, but last question on product market fit. Yeah. And I don't mean to put you on the spot here. Uh, but aside from Acquia, can you think of a few brands that you think are really just like nailing it? With the product market fit equation specifically? Yeah. Yeah, really good question. Uh, I think, you know, a surefire sign is anybody that where their business is growing, you know, super rapidly and, um, and you know, has had great performance. So um, there are certain, in in software in particular, there are certain companies that I think about that are kind of flying right now. Um, I'll, I'll give one example for the B2B marketers out there. So there's a great ABM platform called Sixth Sense. Um, if you haven't used it, you should look into it. Uh, they really landed their messaging to articulate the pain point that most marketers were going through. And that is... Um, trying to solve the ABM advertising problem, right? You want to target specifically at certain accounts rather than a more wide, uh, wide-reaching wide program. And, and their product did that. Yeah. What's really interesting, I think, about Sixth Sense is they were really clear about their vision. And uh, there was a point where they were the up-and-coming in the market as opposed to the market leader. Um, demand base for a long time was the ABM market leader. And Six senses kind of snuck up from behind by really understanding that pain point and then going and executing it with the with the product vision. So that for me is not only a story of a company that's got a really good product market fit, but one that understood the assignment and went and built it as well. Yeah, no, that's a really good one. Now I'm curious, do you feel like, and I'm sorry, I know I said that was the last question on uh, <laughs> product market, but. No, it's good. What's the difference, do you think, or what are some of the bigger differences with a product company versus service company? Like, do you think it's more challenging for a service company or less? Depends on the place or the space that they play in. Um, but the bigger challenge for a service company, um, having having worked for one in Rimini Street uh, a few years back now, who we successfully IPO'd in 2017, um, the the bigger challenge with a service industry is or a service offering is to um is to be able to deliver that same end result time and time again because ultimately it's all about the people that you have to be able to deliver a service as opposed to you know something that you have you know programmed just to operate on rinse and repeat over and over again in 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 like software um so that's the biggest challenge is your service might have a great fit, 
but you've got to be able to consistently deliver that. Um, often, often when you're thinking about variables that you don't actually control, because some of those variables could be things that are, you know, to do with your customer and, and how they're set up as opposed to how you're delivering your product. So that's the biggest difference for me is that a service offering very often has to morph and change to suit the customer more than, you know, a physical or intangible product like, a you know, a piece of software um, does. And, and so being able to control those variables is very difficult. Um, and that can, that can be interesting. Okay. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So it sounds generally like a little bit more challenging for, for a service company. Yeah, you've got to be on it. And that customer feedback loop is is like even more important. You need to be doing it real time. And so when we were at Rimini Street, for example, like the amount of work that we did on customer satisfaction, um, surveys, reporting, MPS measurement um, was, was hypercritical because actually that was the proof point of the value of the product more than more than some of the very tangible, you know, um, ROI metrics, right? We we had a great pricing model. It's we'll do whatever your incumbent is doing for 50% of the price. So marketers dream, right? But the proof point was not in the, yeah, we can deliver you ROI. Everybody got that really easily. The proof point actually became, hey, we can you do that for me? I know you did that for them. I totally believe you. I've even spoken to them. And they told me that you did it, but can you actually do that for me? Because I think I'm different than them. So that was that was a lot of our marketing messages, customized and focused, and and relating that it's not just one case study that says this is all of our customers that say this. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, and it reminds me of a story from our early days. We started as an SEO company; like all we did was just organic search, uh, and. We our assumption was that the you know the value prop was like hey we'll get you number one on Google we'll get you more website visitors more phone calls these things and customers did value that but we started learning more and more because we were selling to like micro businesses you know tiny mom and pop shops at the beginning uh, but we learned that like they didn't know how to access their websites they didn't know how to log into hosting you know like they didn't know how to update or make changes and for us of course that kind of stuff was very easy so we started basically just like taking control of their websites and we wouldn't even charge any any more from them but then when when they would give us testimonials and stuff they would barely even mention the seo they would just call us their web guys you know so, and that's why we've, um, as we grew, we always like maintained that development team and that technical team because, you know, a lot of times they're, they're the unsung hero in the equation. Yeah, I can believe that. And actually I feel really lucky here, um, at Acquia, um, that, I mean, we'll get into this in a minute. We're, we're a website company for people that don't know about it, right? We, we help thousands of customers around the world host their website, um, but we're really lucky because to compare to a lot of B2B marketing teams, we actually have our own in-house dev team. Right. Um, and the the superpower that that gives us as a company is our speed to market with changes on the website and rolling out programs and being able to control and do all of that in-house is just phenomenal. 
Yeah. Uh, it, it's very common for a company, even of Acquia size, right? You know, 300 million plus in revenue and uh, 1,500 people in size. It's really common for the website still to be completely outsourced and managed by an agency just like yourself. So totally. Um, to, to have the luxury of that, if I dare, dare say, is, you know, is amazing. Yeah. Or it's like a lot of times it's the product teams mm-hmm. that, um, you know, that are tasked with it. But of course, it's like the lowest thing on their priority list. <laughs> yep. Cool. Well, that's a great seg. Let's talk about Acquia. Um, yeah. You'd, you'd mentioned, uh, I know you got your start largely in hosting. Um but I guess tell us just, I mean, I know it, like you guys are a big deal in my mind and I think you're a big deal in the industry too, but just for folks that don't know, do you want to uh, say anything else just to intro? Yeah, sure. So if you, if you haven't already heard of Acquia, no problem. I like to think of us as the, and this is a bold claim, but I think we can back it up. We're the unsung hero in the web hosting business and, and in the digital experience business as we are today. Um, a lot of people will have heard of some of our competitors like WordPress or uh, Adobe, right, in the in their product, Adobe Experience Manager. Um, but our founder, a guy called Dries, a uh, Belgian, um, had this great idea uh, more than 20 years ago now to build a content management system, which is called Drupal. And that's where it all started. The thing that makes us the unsung hero and why I feel bold in saying that and, and rightly, say, uh, rightly so in justifying that is that he, he came at it with an open source philosophy. So yeah. Drupal, which is our, our core CMS and what we help people build websites on all around the world, is completely open source and completely free. So if you're trying to build a massive website at scale or even something just relatively straightforward like a brochureware site, you can, if you choose, go and download Drupal completely free from the Drupal Association, host it on a server yourself, and as long as you know how to code a little bit, you can build a front end to that website and all of your content in there and you can run a website yourself. Um, so there are so many websites that came into existence because of the accessibility to a you know proper, uh, carefully developed, secure, well-governed CMS that Drupal was that just wouldn't have happened for, for others. So all that said, fast forward now to 2023, and we're a a digital experience platform. What does that mean? Well, everybody has a digital experience platform. They might just call it something else to them. It could be a combination of their CRM, their marketing automation tool, and their website, and and the back end of their website. Um, It could have some elements of personalization. It could have some data components in it and things like lead flow management and all of those things. But all of those things together are the digital experience platform that you have built to serve your end customer with the digital experience that they get by interacting with your brand. And that's what Acquia does. All of those things, apart from the CRM bit, um, are what we help our customers with. And they build big, beautiful, reliable, well-governed digital experiences all over the world. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And um you know, I didn't realize, I knew that you guys were Drupal focused. I didn't realize that you actually invented Drupal. So <laughs> that is, uh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's one of our biggest unique selling points for sure. Um, and yeah, Dries is still our CTO and co-founder today. Uh, he's still involved in the business. Uh, I talk to him a couple of times a week. He's a really nice guy. He's also, and Dries, this is a massive compliment if ever you see this, 
He's also so down to earth. It's unbelievable. I've met some founders in my time that are very, very different to him. And he's so humble um, and yet clever at the same time that it's uh, it's a real superpower of Acquia's to have him on board for sure. Yeah. And I mean, anybody who invent, who invents like, you know, one of the top 10 CMSs in the world, it's gotta be pretty clever. I would say he's a smart guy for sure. Um, and the, you know, the, the best thing is that, um, because he's so humble, he's, he's really good at also articulating how other people should solve problems without seeming overpowering. Um, so yeah, he's, he's a smart guy, but he knows how to use his superpower of being smart to kind of help the rest of the company too, which is really cool. It is really cool. Yeah. I could use, I could use a lesson in that probably. (laughs) Um, so tell me about some of the, the biggest wins that you've had to date. Like what are some of your, some of the moments that you're most proud of, or even just one of the moments that you're most proud of in your tenure? Yeah, sure. Well, so, you know, I, I've talked about um, all of these different companies that I've worked at and the product market fit and all of that sort of stuff. But as you hinted at in the, you know, my kind of bio at the start, the common thread has always been, has been hyper growth. Um, and that was actually my kind of first task here at Acquia was to help get the the European region, the, the Europe, Middle East and Africa, the EMEA region on that path to hyper growth. So, um, I joined right at the beginning of 2020, just before the pandemic. I had three months, two and a bit months where we were in the office and stuff. And then, uh, and then we were in lockdown. Um, uh, but fortunately I got, you know, to come out to HQ in Boston and meet the team there and get to know all of my colleagues in person before we went into the, the, you know, the, uh, remote working world. That's great. Um, that was super helpful to have an impact. And so I guess the headline of that part of my career here at Acquira and the story is in kind of just about three years um, in EMEA, we went from around 30 million in revenue to over 80 million. Wow. Uh, So. Holy crap. (laughs) So that's not just me. That's not just something that I did. That was the whole team working together. You know, we had great local leadership, great sales leadership. Um, and a really clear strategy of understanding our product market fit and how we were going to execute on it. And wow. the, the secret source was really straightforward. It was if we increase our retention rate and the amount of cross sell that we have to our install base while simultaneously driving, you know, new growth, we get the double whammy, right? You get a decent organic growth rate from your new business clients coming through the door. And then you're getting upsell and cross-sell from your existing clients. And then those two things, as time goes on, start to be the flywheel that catalyst each other. Because then every new client that you've got through the door that you've sold one solution to, there's still room to cross and upsell other solutions to as well. So the two help each other out and you end up with this massive flywheel effect. And that's what we were able to do in EMEA um, here at Acquia. And that's, you know, that's been amazing. Um, I definitely learned a lot along the way, but you know, being able to effectively market to both customers and new business prospects um, with multiple solutions, with multiple messages, right? That big problem that we talked about um, in the product market fit conversation, um, uh, you know, helped help generate loads of inquiries, loads of leads that, you know, um, we had a great BDR team that was able to execute on them and uh, and we made it work. 
it was brilliant. It was one of those times in my career where, you know, everything seemed to come together at the same time and we were firing on all cylinders and, and yeah, it was, it was a, a beautiful machine to watch in action. That really is awesome. And you know, the formula there that you laid out, which is like net new acquisition and upsell cross sell, uh, you know, it's not rocket science necessarily, but there's not that many companies that do both of those things well. Right. You know, like most companies tend to be better at one of those things than in the other. Uh, and it really saps, you know, the overall growth rate. So that's, that's inspiring and that's a great lesson of itself. Um, you'd mentioned, you know, you were getting a bunch of inquiries and, uh, the BDRs were doing well. What, what is the biggest driver of your revenue engine now? Like, which motions, which channels, which techniques or strategies, like what's really driving the, the, uh, the engine, especially in terms of net new. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of hinted at this, if you were listening closely earlier on in one respect. So we're, we're a multi-product company, right? We serve multiple solutions. And so of course, like every company, as we start to grow, we look to gain efficiency in our execution. And so one of the things that we uh, we really worked hard at was actually creating the right content with the right message and then uh, really driving organic inbound to supplement all of the targeted ABM stuff that we were doing outbound before. Mm-hmm. Um, then when you layer on the feedback that you get from that organic inbound, right? you know where the natural demand is in the market because you can see it. And then you start to alter your paid programs to also align with that. You get that double whammy again, right? In a very different way, but from your marketing programs, you get the double whammy. You are aligning your paid programs with where the natural demand is coming from. Yeah. And so that's that's really helped us, I would say, over the you know the past year and a half, two years, which uh, from a macroeconomic perspective have been relatively turbulent. Um, we've you know we've been very good at executing against our plan. I'm not going to talk about any of Aquia's, you know, confidential numbers externally, but um, we've been pretty much on target, uh, if not above, for like six or seven consecutive quarters while the world's been in a relatively tumultuous state. And I, oh, yeah. and I think really the secret sauce was just, you know, um, was understanding where the natural demand was and our kind of organic first strategy really helped us with that. Mm, that's smart. That's really smart. Um. So it's, yeah, I mean, there's definitely synergies between organic and paid, but then uh, taking the, and sometimes you do it vice versa, right? Sometimes you look at what's working in paid and then you target yep. via organic, but I think that's really smart to look at what's happening organic and then target via paid. Very smart. Yeah. One of the things that we had to do as a kind of proxy to this as well, which This is advice that I would give to anybody, actually, whether you're, you know, um, whether you're in tech or or any business. We actually did a a Martech stack evaluation as well and made sure that our our tech stack supported the customer journeys that we needed. So we started to think about the capabilities that we needed in our tech stack and really mapped that out. Um, And so, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you for example. What role does chat play in your funnel today, right? Where do, where do leads enter um, chat? Is that a mid-funnel activity? Is that a bottom-of-funnel activity? 
Um, what happens once they've engaged with chat? Do they go straight to sales? Do they engage in more content? How do we host that content? How do we refer that content? Do we need an ABM campaign once somebody's come inbound? How does how does the data go from our chatbot through to our ABM platform to help us target? So as part of that mix and getting to the optimal workflow as efficiently as possible, we also went through a capability mapping process. And that mm-hmm. was kind of the, the underpinning activity that helped us understand what's the right tech stack to help us execute on the things that we need to do to have a great digital experience for our customers as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, it sounds like you guys are killing. Uh, you are a very impressive marketer as well as I can tell you're an amazing leader. Um, surely it's not all wine and roses. I'm curious, like what are the big challenges that you're facing right now or what's kind of keeping you up at night? Yeah, great question. I think um, the uh, the biggest challenge that um, I see on the horizon is is actually around uh, getting our message in the hands of our sales team and our full go-to-market organization as efficiently as possible and at the right time as possible. Because again, we're now multi-product, right? We're a multi-product organization. Yeah. And, and just like in marketing, our sellers also have to be able to deal with conversations about multiple pain points and, and, um, and, you know, uh, solving those challenges that our customers have yeah. with one or more of our products, right? Um, and just like any growing organization, we have new salespeople coming through the door all of the time um, and getting them enabled successfully and ramped up successfully to then you know be able to execute on the output of all of the marketing campaigns that we have mm-hmm. um, is tricky because... Not everybody is, you know, able to articulate a multi-product value proposition to a customer within like two months of starting a new job. Right. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to train the sales force with the campaign messages, with the, you know, solution level messages. And so we want to be as best we can at that. We want to be the best at doing that for our sellers. Um, yeah. Because we truly believe that to have a great product is one thing, but to deliver then a great service around it and and have sellers who are thought leaders almost is going to be a key differentiator for us in the market that we play in. So we don't want people to have a, a, a you know a bitter taste in their mouth when they walk away from a sales conversation. We want them to actually go, you know, that salesperson didn't seem like a salesperson. They were actually really helpful. Yeah, yeah. No, that is certainly a challenge. Uh, what are you doing? I mean, how are you guys tackling that? Yeah, we've we've actually been through um, a process which really helped us uh, understand those pain points better. Um, so we surveyed a lot of our uh, a lot of our customers who use various combinations of our products, and we actually said to them that that question that I was I, I suggested everybody asked before: yeah. What's the problem you're trying to solve? How well do we solve it for you? And and we were able to then map what we internally call desired customer outcomes. So these are things that our customers are trying to achieve. And so the way that we're trying to solve that problem is actually arming all of our go-to-market team, sales and marketing, and even our partners, by the way, too, who sell on our behalf, um, with messaging that backs into those pain points first. We organize everything that we do around those desired customer outcomes. What are our yeah. customers actually trying to achieve? 
the the test is almost you should be able to have an entire pitch conversation with a customer without mentioning a product you should the, the whole conversation should be framed completely in what is your pain point and how might technology of some kind help solve that problem imagine if you could automate this workflow imagine if that data was connected and integrated here it's not about what does this product do it's about how can we potentially help you solve your pain point and nothing more than that interesting yeah no i like that a lot you know um you gave me an idea as you were talking we have a sister company called obo uh and they work more i would say like on the data rev ops you know kind mm -hmm. of marketing ops side of things where we're more performance um but they have this tool they built this tool which is like a chat bot like imagine chat gpt but it's trained on your documents right mm. so like that new salesperson could go and be like you know like what's the like what's the you know the 30 second value prop for the cdp product for instance right. and just like hit that in the chat bot and then it would you know generate that that's kind of cool yeah it is really cool instead of like searching the docs you know it's just a just a utility like i'm sure that they could just go search the you know search the server and find that somewhere but it lives right within slack like you can be like slash whatever you call it and then you know just type yeah. the question i think i think you've hit on two really interesting concepts there so one is obviously the use of ai in 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 many ways with inside of organizations the, the second though is you're talking about how people like to learn there yeah and that's been actually one of the things that we've observed through this you know trying to get better at helping our salespeople be better yeah um is that you know a salesperson today likes to learn in a very different way than a salesperson 10 years ago if ever you've worked for a software company anyone that's listening you'll have gone through and you joined them 10 years ago you'll have gone through like a two-week intensive new hire training where you're all in a classroom and you studied everything about every single product You'll have then probably had to like practice a pitch and you'll have done that real time. You might have even recorded a video and had to present to people and so on and so forth. Well, that's all very like synchronous learning in a classroom, high touch environment. People like to learn generally in life now by consuming things in really small sound bites at a time that suits them at the point of the day when their mind is ready to receive information. And, you know, a great example of this is how like, Gen Z learn by asking TikTok those questions and putting it in the TikTok search bar and waiting for somebody to have produced a video that explains it to them in three minutes or less. Yeah, yeah, true, true. Right? So I think the way people are learning is shifting, which you know we need to be aware of, I think, as businesses everywhere because our customers are trying to learn about our products and our sellers need to learn about our products to take them to market too. Yeah. So, Tom, I promised you that I would be the time keep and not go over i've failed you in that regard i'm sorry <laughs> that's okay uh, let's move to the lightning round yep you ready i'm ready question one if you were to start a side hustle what side hustle would that be yeah this was a no-brainer for me so outside of work i love to play golf uh any side hustle would have to be uh golf related i do have an idea i just i've never had the time to go do it it's a golf uh subscription service so imagine you're a regular golfer 
Uh, you get to the pro shop, you need like a dozen balls to play because you're an average golfer like me and you lose a lot of them. Um, but you get there and it's like 50 bucks and you're like, oh, that's awful. Yeah. Imagine if just once a month somebody delivered a you know box of golf balls at a discounted price to your door and you didn't have to think about it. Like a, a Amazon subscribe and save, but for golf stuff. Mm, interesting. I bet that'd be a winner. Amazon would acquire I so. you, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. So if anybody else wants to start that idea, you just have to list me as your co-founder and give me 50% of the business, okay? Um, that's not a big ask at all. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, number two, top three books, authors, influencers, podcasts, uh, or any, you know, any medium that has made an impact in your career. Yeah. Um, confession from me, because you'll very often hear like business leaders who say, oh yeah, I read like a book a day and da, da, da. my secret is I, I actually hate reading. Mm -hmm. I, I will read if you know, it's something that I really want to learn about and, you know, I'll pick up a book and do it. I, I have books on the back here actually that I have read. So it's not that I don't read at all. It's just not something that I enjoy. So I tend to use audiobooks if I can to help me out with that. I also like engaging in, you know, non-written stuff. So like listening to the podcasts and, and, you know, watching clips and stuff like that. I did actually just read a book uh, called Playing to Win uh, by Lafley Martin, which is really cool. So this is about... Um, if you're trying to build, you know, a business strategy, it gives you a whole framework of how to do it. So um, that's one there. And then because I very often work for um, companies that are, you know, either VC or PE funded, I'm kind of quite aware of that whole space and, and you know, watch technology and I watch VC and PE quite closely. And so I really enjoy, there's, an, there's a podcast called the, the All In podcast with four guys who are from, you know, VC and PE backgrounds and they're all billionaires and they all have very unique perspectives that you couldn't ordinarily listen to. So I really enjoy listening to them as well. Uh, the other one, and it's actually a really short book, but I have it on here. Uh, I'm just going to grab it real quick. It's called Make Your Bad. So there was, you know, um, uh, an admiral in the US Navy that gave a, a commencement speech at a university a while back. It went viral because he give this whole speech about Make Your Bed. And this is the very short little book that he wrote about it afterwards. The takeaway from it, though, if you do that one thing every day really, really well, and you set your day off with it, everything else will fall into place from there. So it's about, you know, getting into good habits, doing it religiously, and then, uh, you know, you, you get to operate at a higher level. So that's another book that I've definitely taken a lot from. Interesting. Have you done that? Have you started making your bed every day? <laughs> I I do make my bed every day, but uh, both figuratively and literally. Yeah, there's there's a few things that I do at the start of every day. So uh, I try to leave the first 30 minutes to 45 minutes of my calendar blocked off um, to get my priorities sorted at the beginning of every single day. Mm. I want to know what meetings I need to have prepped for. Um, I, I then also color code my calendar with all of the different, uh, types of meeting that I've got. And that really helps me hone in on the ones that I might need to do prep for, um, versus the ones that are kind of more run of the mill that I can just kind of walk into like a, like a one-to-one, -one, for example, or, you know, an internal meeting versus a high value meeting where I'm, you know, it's attached to revenue or it's to do with a customer or a partner or something external. Mm, interesting. Like that. All right. Very cool. And number three. How do you avoid burnout and how do you uh, also help your team to do the same? Yeah. So uh, I'm British based in the UK. 
And here in Europe, we're really, really good at taking our PTO. Um, mm. And that is my secret tip. Uh, it's, you know, some companies have more paid time off than others. And, you know, you have to work with what you've got for sure. But I've worked with so many teams where even if people got a small PTO allowance, they still weren't taking it. And I think the days have gone of it seen as like a, a credible thing to do to not be taking time off. Because for me, if I've just taken a two-week vacation, which I did in August, by the way, I went to France for two weeks. Um, mm. I come back so energized and so productive and ready to hit the ground that it beats not taking PTO. And so I encourage my team to do exactly the same. And the guidelines that I give them is you should be thinking about taking one full week every quarter as a minimum. Mm, nice. Well, that's that's a good one. I like that. Yeah. Very cool, Tom. Well, this has been awesome. Uh, I've learned a lot here. I've been inspired to go work on our market message fit um, or our product market fit as well as, you know, just talk with some customers and ask them those two big questions. Um, yeah. so thank you very much for everybody listening. If you learned something here today, or if you laughed at all, share this with a friend or drop us a five-star review, uh, wherever you get your pods, that'd be really helpful and appreciated. Uh, Tom, for folks that want to learn more about you or Aquia, where would you direct them? Yeah, aquia.com is is the best thing for all things Aquia. Uh, if you're interested in me, check out my LinkedIn page. And um, a little shameless plug, you'll see a new podcast coming from Aquia in just a few weeks from now as well. It's going to be called The Open Source. So keep an mm -hmm. eye out for that one. Cool. I'll definitely check that out. All right. Very good, Tom. Stay on the line just a second. We're going to check out. But for everybody else, this has been another exciting episode of Revenue Driven CMO, and we will see you next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us here today. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at revenuedrivencmo.com. That's revenuedrivencmo.com. And hey, exclusive for listeners of this podcast, Web Mechanics will do 10 to 20 hours of work for you for free. Literally no sales calls, no BS. Just give them a problem and they will put a team to work for you for free for 10 to 20 hours. Even if you're already a client, if you're struggling with demand gen, lead gen, SEO, SEM, Google ads, LinkedIn ads, conversion optimization, if you can't get Facebook or meta ads to work for the life of you, or you can't figure out attribution, Web Mechanics will take a good hard look at whatever problem you give them, whatever programs you put in front of them, and they will give you an objective, informed opinion, plus some advice from 10 to 20 hours of senior level attention. And that's just because you're a listener of this podcast. So I would suggest take them up on this offer. It's ridiculous. Go to revenuedrivencmo.com slash free. Fill out the two-minute form and you will not regret it. Literally zero downside, unlimited potential for growth. So do yourself a favor, revenuedrivencmo.com slash free. No hyphens, no punctuations. You will be happy about that decision. <laughs>